everybody. Welcome back. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, Spotlights. And uh, today, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my own work, put the spotlight on me for some reason. And that reason is because uh, some of the feedback I've gotten from um, some of our viewers and listeners over the last oh, year and a half since we started is uh, that people want to hear a little bit more about my perspective. And I would say, well, that's not really the point of the show. It's about putting spotlight on other people in the field. And people say, well, you're in the field of religion and ecology, so let's hear more from you. So I figured, why not, uh, you know, give the people what they want. And so I figured to talk um, not just about like everything I do, uh, but about one book in particular, uh, my first book, which came out a long time ago in 2014. And uh, I have it right here. So for those who are looking, you can see the cover. And uh, it's called On the Verge of a Planetary Civilization, A Philosophy of Integral Ecology. And it was uh, largely based on my dissertation uh, research, my doctoral dissertation. So I'll say a little bit about what's going on in there. And uh, you get a sense of the kind of perspective I have and the, the kind of work I do. And you know, the, the main, I think, part of that is a couple of phrases uh, on the verge. We'll talk a little bit about why it's on the verge of a planetary civilization. So what do I mean by planetary civilization? And then that subtitle, it's a philosophy of integral ecology. You might know the term integral ecology from Pope Francis, from Laudato Si, uh, which came out in 2015, a year after my book. Uh, so I'll start by talking about integral ecology, and then we'll get more into the verge and the planetary civilization and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but integral ecology I started studying uh, during my doctoral work at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and uh, people were starting to talk about integral ecology, and I was like, I'm not familiar with this. I was familiar with some things in environmental ethics, and uh, I'd heard about the field of religion and ecology, and I knew about you know, a variety of things I hadn't heard of integral ecology before. And some of it was you know, just, just then kind of coming to light that, that it was a term that people were using. Uh, so I found it interesting as I was kind of just studying the term and finding the kind of web of people and ideas that were all connected to integral ecology. And at that time, right, Pope Francis hadn't yet talked about it. So it was really more associated with folks like Thomas Berry, right, the geologian, and uh, Leonardo Boff. Leonardo Boff, uh, the liberation theologian, appears to have gotten it from Berry, uh, as well as, uh, you know, Boff's also influenced by the work that Thomas Berry did with Brian Thomas Swim, right? They wrote the universe story together. So Boff is citing that kind of stuff. So I found that interesting by itself. Right? Thomas Berry with this very capacious understanding of the history of religions, right? Thinking about Abrahamic traditions, South Asia, East Asia, indigenous traditions, all these really thinking of the, the different, you know, life ways on the planet in a really large perspective. And then Leonardo Boff bringing in like Latin American uh, liberation movements. So now we're really talking about making sure that our uh, theology or religious perspectives are grounded in social movements. So I thought these were really interesting approaches to ecology because I don't know, I think if you mention ecology to some people still today, they think of it primarily as uh, biophysical sciences, right? The science of the relationships between organisms and environments. And it's so much more because there's so many other ways of being and knowing here on earth. So integral ecology is trying to really capture all of these. So it's not just about being holistic in like a scientific sense and a biophysical science sense. And it's not just about including social sciences along with biophysical sciences. 
Uh, it's also about including humanities, especially a broad view of religions and cultures. And it's about learning from social movements for the sake of liberation, uh, whatever that might mean, right? And that's itself a contested term and by no means obvious or simple. There was other stuff too going around. I mean, you know, uh, Sri Aurobindo and his integral yoga uh, was kind of in the mix too, because he was a very influential person for the history of my school. The California Institute of Integral Studies was really founded by somebody who worked with Aurobindo and was trying to carry his message forward, bring it to the West and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that was Aurobindo's thing, right? Early 20th century to mid 20th century, trying to integrate East and West science and spirituality. Uh, and so I have to have a yoga that does that. He was really influential for Ken Wilber and uh, Ken Wilber, I don't know, into the transpersonal psychology movement, but then also kind of became his own like spiritual guru kind of figure, uh, not just a psychologist, but really um, a whole like lifestyle kind of thing. So he had some people that were working with his framework. He has a very complex theoretical framework and uh, they were applying it to ecology. So Sean Esbjorn Hargens and Michael Zimmerman wrote this book called Integral Ecology. That's all about applying Wilbur's framework. And Wilbur saw himself as continuing in the legacy of Sri Aurobindo. So there was that side of it too, which I found interesting. It's a, that's a compelling book. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but the Barry and Boff approaches seemed more interesting to me just because of some of the people they were highlighting, some of the ideas they were highlighting. And part of it for me was also that Leonardo Boff, very widely read, he was also citing some French thinker that's normally associated with like postmodernism, and it's uh, Felix Guattari. Um, and I'm not, that's not great French, French pronunciation. Everywhere you go, people pronounce this guy's name slightly different, Guattari. Uh, but he has a book called The Three Ecologies. It's a very small book and very full of kind of postmodern jargon. But if you can learn to decode it, it's very interesting. And it connects with a lot of other compelling philosophical ideas. So, and Guattari himself, not just a philosopher, he was really trained as a psychoanalyst, but he was also very interested in liberation movements in Latin America, which is how somebody like Boff would have heard of him in the first place, right? Boff, a uh, you know, Brazilian theologian. So just, you know, kind of doing this genealogy of the term and realizing it's connected to a lot of stuff. I found that very interesting because... Uh, I don't know, when you just say we want a holistic perspective on ecology, like, well, what does that really mean? Where is this going to take us? And so I started to get a sense of a larger uh, group of thinkers that can help provide some guidelines for all this, right? Because integral ecology, a nice idea, but there was no like extended elaboration of what it means. Definitely nothing systematic um, aside from the stuff that was coming out of the Ken Wilbur side of things. So I wanted to try and pull together uh, all these threads. So it's a very eclectic book, right? Um, and ultimately doesn't try to say what integral ecology uh, has to be as if it's, there's a one-size-fits-all answer, but tries to open up different possibilities for approaching ecological issues in these ways. And so this question, you know, of like what, what is integral ecology versus what isn't integral ecology, I think that's actually an open question. It depends who you're asking, depends where you're at. Depends what you want that word to do for you. Uh, so that question of boundaries started to become the question for me. Who's in, who's out, what's included, what's not included, 
what's integral, what's not integral. If we're trying to think holistically, all these boundaries about the edge of what's holistic or not holistic really come to light. And so I found that thinking with some of the thinkers associated with Guattari was really helpful. These French postmodern kind of folks who a lot of people might think have nothing to do with like environmental studies and ecological issues, but it turns out they're very relevant to them. So uh, Guattari wrote with Gilles Deleuze, a very famous French philosopher. Um, they're kind of also associated a lot with Jacques Derrida, right? The, whose deconstruction is still a very, I don't know, contested and controversial topic inside and outside of academia. Um, you know, people will make like deconstructed hamburgers and things like that, you know, so uh, art, architecture, poetry, literature, film, deconstructions everywhere. So I was kind of looking at that, that little cluster of postmodern thinkers. So in a way, it's, it's a kind of a mashup of postmodernism with like liberation movements, with environmental philosophy and with religion, ecology, all these things kind of coming together to really think about one thing, boundaries. So this is why I talk about The Verge, right? The book is on the verge of a planetary civilization. So it's I'm saying that we're about to have a planetary civilization, kind of that thing. But it's also that I'm writing about the verge, the limit, the boundary, the border, and that somehow that's one of the core issues integral ecology can help us with is negotiating boundaries. So many about the boundaries between science and religion, uh, the boundaries between self and other, uh, the boundaries also between two ecosystems, right? An ecotone, the boundary, you know, where two ecosystems converge, uh, beginnings and endings, you know, centers and peripheries. So much of the task of bringing together multiple perspectives or bringing together conflicting parties. It's always about boundary negotiations. So I divide the book into three categories or three chapters, rather beginning, middle and ending, looking at boundaries. And the overall point is just to learn to pay attention to the irreducible complexity of boundaries, that something happens at a limit where you're kind of inside and outside at the same time. And that that ambiguity is not something we need to erase. It's actually something we need to embrace. So not that different from something you'd hear from somebody like maybe Simone de Beauvoir about an ethics of ambiguity, except bring that kind of thing into a more global context and definitely uh, more inclusive of religions and thinking more about non-humans. But it's all about that ambiguity that happens at the limit. Uh, I think a good example of this is just standing in a doorway. That's a good example of how you are both inside the room and not inside the room at the same time. And you're just sitting there in a doorway being a paradox, right? And so, uh, you know, really just trying to think of that across a lot of different lines. And so using a variety of examples about what it's like to be at the edge of the sea, that's a similar thing. You're on the beach, but you're also in the ocean. And as the tide comes in and comes out, that kind of changes. So, you know, I don't need to go through a whole thing about all the different examples. I don't have a passage to read or anything like that. Um, but Part of the problem is itself examples that we're always trying to come up with examples and we're trying to make those examples be exemplary. So that's even itself an issue. Uh, what are the examples that we choose when we're trying to make the points that we're making? Who's included, who's not included, who gets represented, who doesn't get represented. And so, you know, the politics of citation comes into this kind of question. Who are we citing? Like, why would I cite Derrida when I could cite another thinker, maybe a Latin American thinker who's saying something very similar? So I address those problems. 
and yet still stay very rooted in kind of the you know Western European philosophical tradition, right? At the same time as addressing this need to go beyond it into something uh, more multicultural, cosmopolitan, maybe global. Um, so I don't know. This is probably a good time to say that it's not about the globe; it's about the planet on the verge of a planetary civilization. What does integral ecology have to say about our civilization and the problem of globalization in particular? So I'm, you know, basically writing at a context of uh, environmental collapse. And this was, you know, this book came out in 2014. Things have gotten worse in a lot of respects, certainly uh, with regards to like mass extinction and climate change. Things, you know, are unraveling even more than they were then. So the problem is still very real. Uh, we're seeing something like the collapse of global civilization. And some people say, well, we need to save civilization. Other people say, well, maybe we need to save Earth from civilization. Maybe civilization is the problem. And we need to go back to whatever we were doing before civilization showed up. Whether civilization is the kind of modern enlightenment project of civilization, or maybe we can think of civilization as everything that happened after the Neolithic Revolution. Either way... People might want to go back to something like the late Pleistocene and say, that's when things were good. That was the simple life. So what do we do? What do we do with this global civilization um, that clearly is unsustainable, that people have been pointing out for a long time? I mean, as soon as the Industrial Revolution began, you had you know the Romantic movement saying, maybe we should go back and do something simpler. So people were immediately critiquing it. Uh, there's always been a reaction against modernity, against industrialization, uh, colonialism, uh, now global capitalism, right? Neoliberal economics. So what do you do with that? And uh, integral ecology says integrate. That, we, that basically what we have on this planet right now is something like an integration crisis that we need to learn to work together. And this, uh, you know, is the classic environmental ethics problem of anthropocentrism that humans need to reintegrate with the earth. Uh, but it's also that humans need to integrate with each other. Humans have never really been anthropocentric people. I mean, caring about all humanity. I don't think so. Uh, there's a lot of sexism and racism and um, nationalisms and things like that, that have prevented people from really having any kind of sense of like universal belonging to humankind. So really even just bringing humans together with one another, that's still a massive integration crisis. Certainly today with uh, people's concerns about disinformation, misinformation, and all that kind of stuff, having trouble trusting media or which media, scientific authorities or experts, you know, we're having trouble uh, listening to each other and building any kind of uh, trust or solidarity. Integral ecology says integrate. And how? It's going to be by paying attention to the irreducible complexity of boundaries. Integration can't just mean some kind of holism that swallows up all differences. So how do you have continuity and difference? And one of the things that comes up in this context is uh, Val Plumwood's ecofeminist philosophy, because she critiques deep ecology on exactly this point. Deep ecology is all about integration. It's, it's a holistic and all that kind of stuff. But she says, yeah, it's so holistic that it loses difference. That's a continuity without difference. And it becomes this kind of undifferentiated unity and that loses the, the relational dynamics between things. 
And of course, some I'm sure deep ecologists could push back and say, actually, if you read this and this, we try to account for the differences and things. But, you know, she doesn't want a monism. She wants a more relational ontology. That's not just a, re- a reduction of the many to the one. But we're, we don't want to lose the one in favor of the many. So again, that kind of paradox of how do you hold that tension between them standing in the doorway where the, the one is the many. Um, as Deleuze and Guattari put it, we're looking for a magic formula. Monism equals pluralism. Like, how could that be? How could the one be the many? So a really important person I also engage is the post-colonial theorist Gayatri Spivak, because uh, she has this concept of planetarity that seems really useful for thinking about this, that if we want to be against globalization uh, or the current form of globalization or whatever, that doesn't mean we have to retreat towards some kind of localism. Problem with localism is it's, let, it's letting this globalization set the terms of what the local and the global even are. And it's letting uh, globalization set the terms about what it means to integrate different locales into this larger unit called the globe. Maybe we can think differently about where we are. Uh, After all, and Spivak makes this point, nobody lives on the globe. Like the globe is this kind of financialized, computerized, digital system. It's not somewhere that actual bodies actually live. We live on Earth. Uh, It's a good Samuel Beckett quote. You're on Earth. There's no cure for that. And so globalization, it really abstracts humans from Earth. It extracts humans and uh, labor and bodies and minerals all from Earth rather than actually inhabiting Earth. So the answer then to the problem of globalization is to actually live on Earth. Like we know we're on a planet. Let's act like it. And that means acknowledging our interdependencies our ecological connectivity, which is something that a localism can't do because, again, it's cutting itself off. It's a I want to be left alone or a we want to be left alone. Leave alone me and my neighborhood or a handful, a small village or some homesteads. And that ignores the fact that there's massive transboundary conflicts that we have to deal with because of the planetary nature of uh, human-non-human relationships. I mean, one example climate refugees. This is already a problem and going to be increasing a problem throughout this century and probably the next, uh, because things aren't going to calm down anytime soon. So we're going to need to find ways to deal with this. And you can't do that just at the local scale. We're going to need to figure out how to connect different regions to one another across the whole planet so that there's planetary forms of connectivity and solidarity. It doesn't necessarily mean you scale up. That's kind of what globalization tried to do. There's more of an idea of scaling out. You know, have a sustainable village that honors local customs, local knowledges, and the specificities of place, but do it in a way that connects to others so that you can cooperate when there's things like a refugee crisis or even things like uh, shared water resources, right? Rivers oceans. These can't be nailed down. So we need to figure out a way to to kind of work with them. So the planet then is an alternative to the globe, where we still live on Earth, not just in our local places, but in local places that are connected to other local places across a whole planet. 
This is similar to what Mitchell Thomas show calls cosmopolitan bioregionalism, right? Bioregionalism is all about local living. It's a kind of ecological localism, but the cosmopolitan side makes sure that these bioregions are learning to connect with one another so they can cooperate on a larger uh, scale or a broader scale. One of the ways that we can think about this is uh, the globe is normally thought of as a kind of hierarchy where there's the global and then that's in charge of all these lower levels like the nation, the region, local. Instead of having a hierarchical relationship between the local and the global, as we'd imagine like a tree, we would think of the relationship as more of a rhizome. All kinds of messy, naughty interconnectivity. Naughty, not, not naughty. Well, I guess maybe the kind of messiness, but naughty, like in the sense of interconnected, entangled, intertwined. So in this sense, the, uh, the local and the global are in these kind of mutually constitutive relationships. That's what planetarity is about. And it's about, you know, the kind of awakening of subaltern knowledges, a kind of, uh, you know, what Catholic social teaching calls a preferential option for the poor. We're looking for those who have been excluded from the dominant systems of globalization and letting them have their voices. This includes humans and non-humans. And not just representation of humans and non-humans, but participation. And so ultimately, you know, I propose something like a participatory approach to ecological democracy. Not that fancy, really. Um, and some people would be like, well, that's not socialist enough. And so, you know, an eco-socialist might be like, I'm not sure. Is, it, is democracy really going to do it? Like, well, but if it's this kind of planetary democracy, then really it's not going to look like what we've called democracy in the past. And it's not going to look like what we've called socialism. It's not going to look like what we've called capitalism. Those words really only make sense for a certain period of human civilization and the material and cultural bases that made those terms meaningful are changing so rapidly that I don't know if it's really that helpful to, to think of the terms as much as think of the examples that we're drawing our attention to, right? Because whatever the future looks like, it's not going to be socialism as we've known it. We could call it socialism, but it's not going to be the same. We can call it democracy, but it's going to be different. So ultimately what a lot of uh, I'm saying throughout the book with any term I propose is like, yeah, but there's other ways to say things. And the important thing about integral ecology is this open, non-judgmental attention to other ways of saying things. Openness to the other, to the subaltern, to alterity, as uh, you know, French postmodern thinkers like to say, alterity, otherness, uh, to, to stay open to the other. Although not so open that you put yourself in a position of constant vulnerability, right? Because after all, you're another to yourself, you need to be open to yourself. So again, the self-other boundary is another one of these boundaries we have to pay attention to. Staying open, but in a playful way where you're not totally open all the time, you learn to close to protect yourself when you need to protect yourself. Constant openness is impossible. You need some structure in your life. So all these liminal positions between structure and chaos, you know, we live in a chaosmos. It's not really reducible to order, cosmos, or chaos. Uh, it's They're all entangled. So learn to pay attention to that and to live with that. So no answers, but just some guidelines for how to pay attention to the situations you're in so that we can collaboratively d design some answers together. Uh, what Arturo Escobar calls design for the pluriverse. I like that term 
a lot. I think that's pretty helpful. So what do I recommend? Is there any kind of ultimate answer here? Probably not. But ultimately, it comes down to love. Uh, Catherine Keller is a really big influence on this whole project and her approach to process theology, post-colonial liberation, feminist theology. There's a lot of stuff she pulls together and she does some work with Spivak's concept of planetarity and she adds love, you know, as, as many Christian theologians would and a lot of theologians across traditions, uh, love. And what is love but this kind of open, non-judgmental, careful attention to the other? And that that is a way to work through environmental problems that doesn't just put us in a position of despair about our crisis, uh, but puts us in a position of, of kind of joyful participation in opportunities for emergent forms of uh, collective belonging, right? That, that the environmental crisis hurts a lot, but it doesn't just have to be seen as a crisis. It can also be seen as an opportunity for love. And that the suffering that we feel can empower our care. Not deleting the suffering, we're actually letting it open our hearts to the world. Uh, so those are a few ideas in there. That's just a little, a little bit about the kind of stuff I think about. So I hope for those of you who uh, watch or listen to this podcast and are always wondering, yeah, but what does Sam think about things? That's a little bit. Uh, and... This might also explain why I like listening to others so much, because <laughs> a lot of my work is about the importance of listening to others. So when I get other people on the show, I just love listening to them and uh, don't necessarily want to put my spin on it or direct conversations in, in my way. Um, I'm always just amazed at how many people are doing such interesting work and it's inspiring because you realize that uh, the future really looks bright when you see how many great ideas people have. Of course, getting these ideas put into practice, getting these practices rolled out to more people, that's, you know, things are complicated. Uh, but generally, I find it very hopeful and very inspiring. So, hope you enjoyed this little intro into, uh, into some of my perspective. I'll probably do a couple more of these where I let you know about a couple other books I've written, just to let you know who I am, uh, so, so you get a sense of, of who's talking to all these other people who are on, on the program. So... Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back next week with more conversations for you. So in the meantime, take care and be well.